I came back from a uh, trip with a um, kind of will to talk about uh, transcendence in Martians in light of suicide. And I'd also love to speak for a few minutes one of these days about Dean Harcourt, the completely forgotten hero. Usually when people say completely forgotten, they're basically saying, but I haven't. (laughs) Um, But in this case, I'm always struck when I read Lloyd Douglas at the degree to which, um, for example, Episcopalians uh, have completely missed one of their greatest heroes in literature, Dean Harcourt, in uh, a number of the books of Lloyd C. Douglas, whom no one likes to read anymore, and whose style is opprobrious, but who had a lot to say. And his book, The Big Fisherman, drew me back to Invitation to Life by um, Douglas about Dean Harcourt, the dean of Trinity Cathedral in Chicago. And I said, oh my gosh, this is exactly what uh, Gerald Hurd and Aldous Huxley were speaking about. And what I myself very deeply believe that the role of the church is the role of a, a band of religious psychologists. But that's not what I want to talk about today. The other thing I came back from a trip wanting to talk about very briefly is language. And um, this um, is a short um, kind of meditation or reflection on the use of language. And at first you may say, well, that doesn't sound all that gut level. I mean, I I really want to listen to these things for the purposes of some kind of gut level insight on the, you know, real problems that I experience. But I find that this is such a, a factor in the world that we live in today that it's worth just a go. And, um, it came back so clearly as Mary and I went across the country uh, in fall in the last few weeks, and we saw the degree of homogenization that has occurred. You primarily see this homogenization in the kind of hotels and motels you can stay at uh, as you go in in literally from uh, Idaho to uh, Connecticut. The um, uh, freeway hotels are all the same. They're all exactly the same, and it's very hard to find an option except if you go way off the highway. And if you do that, A, there are very few, B, it might be awful, and C, um, you're tired at the end of the day. You you want to stop as soon as possible in an okay place, and the standardized hotels are perfectly okay, Hampton Inn and, um, you know, Holiday Inn Express and um, Comfort Suites, (laughs) you name it. Uh, They're okay. to, um, to, to, to stay at, so you do, but the extraordinary homogenization, and this led me to think about the homogenization of language and the interest in it. By the way, there was a day, you know, when we used to kid around in college fraternities and um, just sort of bull sessions that you could always stop at hotels if you were looking for such a place, um, shall we say, and they were inevitably called something like uh, the Naughty Pine or the Dew Drop Inn or the Bide a Wee Motel and, of course, the great one, the No-Tell Motel. But today there are no such hotels like that. There are no Bates Motels I mean, unless you get way off the thing, and usually they're closed. And um, the homogenization of life and language actually raises a question that is of religion. And it raises a question of very acute interest. And I just thought I'd talk about it and see what you think. I began with um, Kaiser George and Low Straightjackets uh, giving us the mad science twist. And um, I'm going to close with um, the same artists, 
um, bringing in uh, Count Dracula into a twist, and that will be the connection with the subject. The title is Engsock. Now, you'll immediately remember, I really believe you do remember, that Engsock was the name for the governing kind of administration or authority in the George Orwell novel 1984, Engsock. And um, Engsock was actually short for English Socialism. It was the um, shorthand for English Socialism. But instead of being spelled E-N-G-S-S-C, as in the way we pronounce E-N-G in English, they had tightened it up to make it um, look exactly like it sounds or sound like it looks. Engsock, I-N-G-S-S-C. And um, um, Orwell has a really powerful uh, kind of essay at the end, after the conclusion of 1984, at least the edition that I have here, in which it's, I think it's called a, an introduction to Newspeak. And in it, he describes the sort of springs or intentions behind the homogenization of language and condensations of words under Ingsoc or English socialism in this um, terrible authoritarian controlling world of 1984. And it made me uh, think today of all the different ways that's happening as I read headlines. I'm just going to give you maybe a couple of examples, and then I'm going to sort of say what I think, what's really happening, and then you can decide what you think about this, and maybe you'll have other examples, and you can tell me about them. Um, and uh, here are some examples. Ingsoc, uh, the burden of the essay is that in the purposes of control, a political regime that really has the technological ability to control, to really do this, because power is an end in itself. It's non-ideological. As uh, Orwell pointed out, and as I find this more and more I see it, American power, English power, Russian power, Yemeni power, it's really not about ideology, although it sometimes begins from ideology. But when it becomes powerful, then it becomes about uh, the thing in itself, which is, which is holding on to control, because the, 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 the group ego or the collective ego is just as needy of holding on to control as the individual ego, and is just as resistant to any kind of attack on its uh, suzerainty as... Uh, as the individual is, and he says that, uh, hang on just a sec, that is so great, Mary was telling me she was going for a walk, and um, this is real, well, um, the uh, purpose of uh, language to uh, control people uh, is served by a homogenation of language, taking out all kinds of possible local idioms or individual colloquialisms or what is today sometimes called nuance or any kind of character and making it absolutely uniform, partly for clarity, as we say today, to get everything absolutely, uh, for there be no misunderstanding. And... Um, to use as few words as possible so there is never any mistake and that there is no room for sort of chiseling around the edges. That is to say, everything must be said in as short a uh, version as possible, in as, a new, um, um, what's the word, mnemonically uh, 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 um, uh, understandable as possible, and there can be absolutely no doubt about what you were saying. 
And because um, you, you only want to say a few things because um, you don't want to confuse the people you're trying to control, just say a few things. H.G. Wells in his book, uh, The Outline of History, uh, Volume 1, says that there is a huge um, – people really uh, seem to believe what they're told. Uh, they see this all the time in gossip, right? When you're told something that is completely untrue but it sort of ties into your negative feelings towards someone, you just immediately believe it. I mean, bad gossip is almost always accepted, and then people will say afterwards, well, where there's smoke, there's fire. Well, yes, but people have a desire to believe what they hear. For whatever reasons, we want to psychologize about that. But um, so uh, in the essay, it says you have to, by Orwell, you have to condense everything. You have to um, make sure that there's no room for any kind of misunderstanding. You uh, have to use as few words as possible, so... Everybody can get the message at the same time without anyone raising their hand and saying, what? Because if you um, had to, quote, clarify or elucidate, you might say something you didn't want to say or it might be misinterpreted by someone. So you control uh, it d demands a very, very stripped down language and also one where there's no regional variation of, um, of sound like Ingsoc. And you can imagine England being everything in England that you think is pronounced one way is, is always pronounced a different way. That's just true. But that's we're losing that. So. He had a real uh, fascinating challenge to reduce uh, the language of the British Isles into one. Well, uh, let's think about today. He also said, for example, that you need to use you need to break down the distinction between verbs and nouns. For example, impact had to become a verb. He predicted that. So we say now, such and such impacts my pension. Uh, there are many other examples, but I want to uh, concentrate on just um, really. Uh, uh, f f two, and then give you two uh, final examples, and then talk about Count Dracula. Now, um, in our country, it's both um, because of the nature of everybody reading and listening to listening all the time to input. There is naturally a kind of uh, wanting to boil it all down to the easiest possible and to use the fewest possible words just because the sheer flood of so-called information. So let me give you an example. You'll see in headlines today. Now, um, this is the headline. In the old days, it would have said, Egypt promises it will clamp down on protests. Or Egypt announces it will imprison the opponents of. Now the headline almost invariably is Egypt says will clamp down on protests. Egypt announces will do such and such. In other words, the, um, the personal pronoun it or she or he is now routinely omitted. You'll see this everywhere. Just go on Yahoo news sites, New York Times news sites, Washington Post news sites, uh, uh, Reuters, Egypt says will. So what that does is it's a it's a shorthand. We, we might say it's a shorthand for quick, instant communication. And you may say, well, yeah, that's perfectly all right. Well, it's actually not because it it gets us into the habit of never using uh, a personal pronoun, uh, she, he, or it. It has all sorts of implications on that front, and it also doesn't allow you to possibly change. Um, it allows you a, a kind of a shortcut around uh, of, uh, the possibility of a, uh, of, a, of, a, of a pronoun and a noun not referring to exactly the same thing. Um, you'll have to take that. Egypt says will. Would you see the difference? That, that, that may be very good, but we're, that's a major change. Another one is um, 
the use of a noun for an adjective. For example, Iran coup thought unlikely. Now, we would have said, it was always said until very recently, Iranian coup thought unlikely. Um, Russia leadership announces shortage of, well, we would have said, obviously, Russian so you the the writer of the headline doesn't have to sort of wonder you know is it moscow or muscovite is it iran is it iranian is it iranian german germany's germans all the questions about apostrophes all the questions about certain adjectives you know what about is it a pittsburgher or is it a pittsburghan is it a pennsylvanian or is it a hamburger you you uh, you immediately completely uh, um uh Exterminate all questions about different kinds of unusual forms or local usages. And so Iran coup thought, for you listening, you know, for you the living, it may be that this uh, has not uh, rung any bells at all. But next time you read the headlines in your computer uh, internet news service, notice this. And those are just two examples, but I want to talk about um, uh, something about the root of it. Is it part of it? You may say is just to kind of um, uh, consolidate for purposes of ease of communication. I remember I was talking to a f- wonderful German man who finally said, "Well, I think we ought to perdu one another." Now, in the German language, everybody is um, referred to in you as a. Um, it's the second person plural, and the second person singular, du, as opposed to z, du, as opposed to z, uh, is familiar and actually is reserved uh, in uh, relationships for close relationships, i.e. a very close friend. You would call someone du who was your lover, who was your wife or husband, who was your child, or a child can call the parent du. That is perfectly, because it's such a close relationship, an intimate relationship. Or you can call, as I said, if, you know... Um, you could possibly call a close friend a really close friend do. And to sort of, there used to be a kind of a joke that when you move from Z, you, in the second person plural, to do, in the second person singular, in a relationship, it was almost like becoming a blood brother. I mean, you'd almost prick your finger and sign your name in blood. It was such a big deal. Well, I was with a professor of Hebrew, a wonderful man, and we know each other very well. And he said, you know, I think we probably should call each other do. And I said, oh, but so-and-so, we're not... um, we're not that close yet. I mean, we know each other. We're more than acquaintances. We're colleagues, and we, we've we shared a lot, but I think that's... Shouldn't we wait a little while? And he said, well, yes. In principle, yes, but it's it's just leichter. It's easier. In other words, it was just easier. So obviously, there's a reason sometimes for cutting corners. You do it in language with your children all the time. However, what is it in service of? In the wider sphere, it's probably in service of something. And I would say with communication, and I uh, back George Orwell, he said the um, evisceration of or the elimination of uh, distinctions, uh, especially between verbs and nouns, and the evaporation of pronouns with antecedent proper nouns before them in a sentence was really a form easily of control. And uh, it just depended on how it was being used. Now, let me just say one more thing about how control works. Control is uh, really the prisoner of some kind of attitude, whether it's imposed from on top, and I I see a lot to that, or whether it's some kind of other attitude. And I just want to uh, give you one other uh, example of this. Um, um, the uh, I was um, 
I've noticed that uh, there is a kind of kind of um, national exuberance that is unstoppable among uh, our fellow countrymen, and it will never change. It was never a million years of preaching about uh, the bondage of the will and uh, the human predicament and original sin will never suffice to all the perfumes in Arabia. We'll come back in a hundred years and there will be just another form of it, I'm certain, just based on the own experience of 62 years. But let's look at the expression, um, how this how this works. People always say, you've been saying in America for a long time, um, have a good day. That became sort of uh, almost a European joke about Americans. They were always saying, have a good day, even if, if, even if it was not <laughs> a good day. Then it was, uh, um, have a great day. Uh, it's like the, the, the inflation of, of good had to move to great. So very common to end language, have a great day. I was recently reading a piece of correspondence uh, that was uh, the bearer of very, very bad news. I mean, it was a, a sort of a piece of um, correspondence that was the, the, that bore within it a very, very, very grave and serious news for some people whom I knew some of. And at the end, the a person who'd taken down the <clears throat> um, dictation of it, uh, the assistant who was writing uh, at the end of this very heavy communication, said, um, have a great day signed it da, 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 for such and such a person. And I thought to myself, have a great day. Now, that was reflexive. I don't think the person had thought. The person had come to the point when the person just, that was the way he or she ended every letter. But I mean, there was no thought given to have a great day in relationship to this. And I said, well, that's kind of impervious. That's, it's not interesting how impervious that is. But anyway, you've noticed that what happened about a year and a half ago, actually, I think it was about 13 months ago in four days, there was a sudden turning in American discourse in which have a good day, have a great day, or even in some circles, have an awesome day or have a wonderful day turned overnight to have a good one. I noticed this uh, at the bank because that's where you usually notice it and, you know, doing banking or depositing checks in the outside, you know, window where you do talk to somebody through a screen, have a good one. And I, and then I was going to the, uh, to the publics and every single checkout person was saying, have a good one. And I suddenly, how did this happen overnight? Well, it's like everybody took a pill or it's like what, um, what HG Wells said, you know, uh, people will uh, hear what uh, there's an immediate gravitation towards have a good one. And so you will not, I, I realized it was really clear when I was running into a 75 year old lady who would never have even said, have a good day years ago. No one I know, but someone that I know, someone that someone else knows. And, um, in a fairly formal relatively formal um, interaction. And at the end, as I left, she said, have a good one. And here was this very ancient person telling me to have a good one. I said, oh my gosh, you know, has, has, uh, has the God of football invaded even the church schools? To quote Lewis Auchincloss, you know, has, has this woman even gotten it? It's like, it's like fluoride in the water. Have a good one. But I was delighted to see recently in um, a Whole Foods. Was it a Whole Foods? No, I think it was a super, S-O-U-P-E-R. It's sort of a chain supermarket in Colorado. And as we were going out, this woman said, have a great one. I said, oh my gosh, the, the intrinsic tilt towards um, inflation has even hit the automatic robot uh, zombie language of uh, have a good one. Now it's have a great one. Will it then be have an awesome one? Another um, way that you may have seen this is in the uh, complete substitution of the word uh, grab for get. Now look, right off the bat, you're going to say, oh, well, Paul's on a rant. No, this is important to be said. I'm not going to do any more podcasts on it, but I wanted to just comment. It's fascinating. 
how many Starbucks have I been in recently when the person tells me, says, okay, I'll go, I'll go grab the da-da-da-da-da. What can I grab for you? Can I grab you a da-da-da-da? And I thought to myself, well, that's very interesting because years ago we used to say of people, oh, she's very grabby. Well, that guy is so grabby, which meant pushy. You know, he, he'd kind of butt in front of you and he'd take the thing. And just as you were about to get your little uh, bottle, you know, whatever it was on the, the barbecue sauce, somebody else would come along and in front of you and grab it out of, you know, right in front of the line. And you would call that person grabby. Well, now grab, um, what can I get for you has now been, what can I grab for you? Well, you may say, well, that's absolutely nothing. Well, I think it's something I mean to think about. Now, the last thing, what I'm really trying to say is language is used as an instrument of control. And in our country, it's probably to some extent unconscious and not Orwellian, but rather the kind of creation of attitude. We had a, such an interesting notation recently. This is the fruit of a very long trip. And I went into a restaurant in Colorado, a very, very famous and wonderful place that I had so looked forward to going to that Mary knew long ago when she lived in this particular spot. And um, I said to the very nice, ingratiating person who took our name, because there was a lot of people to get in, I, I said, uh, well, can I come back in 20 minutes? She said, well, it'll be a 45-minute wait. And I said, well, can I come back in about 25 minutes? And she said, well, it's probably better to hang out here because sometimes, and what she was telling me, don't. And then I said, okay, we'll stay here. And then she looked at me and she said, perfect. And um, perfect. And then I noticed I began to have these little antennae, like these uh, those creatures in Mr. Dingle the Strong, the Twilight Zone episode. And little antennae began to go up from my ears. And I began to hear that word perfect instead of great or awesome or terrific or whatever. This is sort of Cartman. This uh, person said to me, perfect. And then I went to, I was in about five places, and I said, well, it will be all right if we check out tomorrow at, uh, you know, at uh, 9 o'clock or at 7 o'clock in the morning because we have to get somewhere. And the person would look at me and said, oh, that would be perfect. And I thought to myself, well, you know, that's an inflation of the word okay. So here it is, this tidal wave of uh, euphoria and exuberance uh, going from good to great to perfect. And the other thing I noticed, and of course I wanted to say this came from California, but I've, I've certainly heard it in California. I go into a restaurant or a place to eat, and the person who's greeting the hostess or host says, how are you? How are you? It's great to see you. As opposed to good evening or hi or hey, glad you're here. Uh, What's your name? Party of? Um, uh, Welcome to our restaurant. But I heard this three different places. Hello. How are you? It's great to see you. At first I thought, well, maybe I'm in the South again, you know, (laughs) which, but usually that would be reserved for at least people you've met once or twice, even if you hated them. But these were complete strangers. And I heard this person say it again and again, everybody that came in got the same treatment. Hello, how are you? And then when they'd say a party of two, be a 45 minute wait. Okay, my, my, my husband will wait here and I'll go around the block and try to get Wi-Fi at the Starbucks. And the husband will wait and then the person would say, well, that's perfect. Well, all I'm trying to say is that this is a uh, um, language is in the service of attitude. Uh, and in the world of Ingsoc, English socialism, it's in the uh, um, service of authoritarian uh, collectivism in a big way, and it may be even true in us, but the world, the flesh, and the devil has this remarkable way of turning everything into its own purpose. Thank you very much. Oh, and I was at a checkpoint uh, recently in a police state, 
and as I, this was in Eastern Europe, somewhere else actually, it wasn't in Eastern Europe, but let's just simply say a police state somewhere. And as we went through the checkpoint, it took a long time after a really a hell of a inquisition, we got through and the soldier at the checkpoint said, uh, have a good day. And then I thought to myself, wouldn't it be great? What would Dracula say? What would Dracula say? He would say, have a good day. Have a good day. Ah, welcome, everybody. Let's twist. <laughs> you are looking good. Cheers. 